To be a church that's like a city set on a hill, we have to commit ourselves to teach people to live right. Now, I say that, and I could have said that, couched it in more theological terms, like to, you know, we, we need to teach people to be holy, we need to teach people to live righteously. I just want to put it in the vernacular. We need to teach people to live right. Verse 1 says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. He's not telling Timothy here to teach sound doctrine. He's telling Timothy to teach what accords with sound doctrine. I actually like the way the New Living Translation puts verse 1. When it translates it this way, As for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Now, of course, we need to teach sound doctrine too. I I don't want to diminish that. We need to teach sound doctrine because what we think influences the way we act. So we need to make sure we teach sound doctrine all the time. But we also need to teach what accords with sound doctrine. We need to teach people how to live right. Paul's telling us here we need to teach something more than just sound doctrine. We need to teach what accords with sound doctrine. We need to promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. We need to teach people to live right. Not only telling them what they need to believe, but also teaching them how to live in the light of what they believe. You see, the problem that Titus had in Crete is exactly the same problem we have in many of our churches today. We have divorced sound doctrine from right living. Our churches are full of people who say they believe in God, but they live as if He doesn't exist. It's a form of Christian atheism, if you will. We say we believe in him, but we act as if he's not even there. And that's why Titus uh, Titus 1.16 says they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Jesus himself makes it really clear how closely connected his word should be to our lifestyle. Jesus connects the two very closely when he says in John 14.23, for instance, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. You get that? Sound doctrine, right living. If you love me, you'll keep my word. He goes on to say uh, in the next verse, whoever does not love me, what? Does not keep my word. You see how closely connected sound doctrine is with right living? You can't separate them. Biblically speaking, listen, write this down if you're not shocked. I want you to write it down and study this stuff out for yourself if you will. Biblically speaking, Loving Jesus and living for Jesus are one and the same. Biblically speaking, you can... Okay, search it for yourself. Loving Jesus and living for Jesus are one and the same. There's no distinction. I mean, can you even call yourself... Should you even call yourself a follower of Jesus if you refuse to do what he says? So what kind of teaching will this look like? here at Christian Life Fellowship, or in any church that takes seriously its call to be like a city set on a hill. What does this kind of teaching look like? How are we supposed to teach people not only sound doctrine, but right living? Well, that's what I want to talk about over these next few minutes. First of all, that kind of teaching has to be comprehensive. It has to be comprehensive. We may not be able to be exhaustive or cover 
absolutely everything a person needs to know, but we have to be comprehensive in teaching people to live right. We need to address everything which is most important and most relevant to the people who are in our church. And I want you to notice how Paul structured that in verses 2 through 10. Paul addresses people in different stages and stations of life. He said to the older men, gave them instructions in verse 2. He talks about older women in verse 3. He talks to young women in verses 4 and 5. He talks to young men in verses 6 and 8. And then he talks to bondservants or employees in verses 9 through 10. Each group in the church needs biblical teaching that addresses their particular need in their particular stage of life. Teaching that helps them grow in their walk with God. Comprehensive teaching that, 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 that shows them how to enjoy healthy relationships with others. Comprehensive teaching that talks about the issues in life, finances, sex, some of those other big issues that we all struggle with in this culture. We, we need to, to talk about how, how we can help people learn to manage their resources. There are comprehensive comprehensive teaching. We can't touch on absolutely everything. That would be exhaustive. We're not able to do that. But we ought to talk about on all those most important areas of life that people struggle with. If you're in recovery, you need to know about the grace of God that sets you free. And if you're not in recovery, you need to know that too, by the way. We'll talk about that next week. So we need to offer comprehensive teaching. And we do that to the very best of our ability. We also need to offer teaching that's concrete. Concrete. Not teaching in vague generalities, but teaching that's specific and it's tangible and sometimes even in your face. That's what Paul does in this passage of Scripture. In verse 2, he says, Older men, he gets specific, are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. And then he gets specific with older women in verse 3. And he says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. You see, this is the kind of teaching that calls out specific vices to avoid and holds up other behaviors as worthy to be embraced. Paul did this throughout his teaching. Read any New Testament book written by Paul and you will see, this is generally the pattern he followed, the first half is sound doctrine, the second half of the book gets real specific and in your face. And the first half is, this is what you ought to believe. The second half of the book is, this is how you ought to behave. Read the pattern for yourself. I'm not making this stuff up. And I want you to check me out. For instance, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul gets specific about the kind of behaviors that are expected of those of us who call ourselves followers of Christ. He says in, verse three, in chapter 3, verse 5, Put to death. You think he's serious? He's saying you need to kill it. Put, there's an old, let me throw this out, an old theological term called mortification of the flesh. It just sounds bad. Say it with me, mortification of the flesh. Oh, yeah, it sounds awful, but you know what? It's actually a pretty good practice, and we need to get into more of it. Mortification of the flesh means I am putting to death those behaviors in me that do not represent Christ well. I'm putting it to death. I'm not, I'm not going to manage my sin. I'm putting it to death. Put to death, Paul said, therefore what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
put to death. Don't play with it. Don't try to manage it. Just get rid of it. Colossians 3, 12 and 13, Paul says, now these are the behaviors you as a son or daughter of God need to embrace when he says, put on then. He's talking about like putting on new clothing. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. See, that's your new identity. Some of us have a new identity in Christ, but we're still living like the old one, the old person used to be. See, right? Colossians 3, 12 through 13 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another. That's specific, and for some of you, that's in your face. You don't want to hear that. But that's what you're called to be as a son or daughter of God. This, uh, let me be honest. This is the kind of teaching that's going to run a lot of people off. I'm not talking about legalistic teaching where I'm telling you, you know, where you're learning how you can't cut your hair, you need to cut your hair, you can't wear earrings or you should wear. I mean, I'm not talking about all that stuff. I'm just talking about what's clearly given to us in the Word of God about the way we should comport ourselves as sons and daughters of God. That runs a lot of people off. They don't want to hear it. Kind of teaching may run a lot of people off, but it will save the rest of us from Christian atheism and easy believism that's so rampant in the church today. It may run a lot of people off, but it helps people marry sound doctrine to right living. And it helps us live lives that represent Jesus well with the light of our good works that bring glory to God. And isn't that what we're after? So we've got to teach people. You guys are looking at me. Okay. Any I'm going to stop. Do you have any questions about that? Are you afraid that we're going to veer off? And have we been legalists? Is this church known for its legalism? Not even close. And we're not, we're not going down that road. Look, here's what I believe. I, I, I preached a message a long, long time ago. Let me, let me frame it for you this way. I believe that there's a pathway to holiness, a roadway that takes us right where God wants us to be, and it's a straight and narrow path. On one side is a ditch, and that ditch is called licentiousness, where we just think we can do whatever we want to do because the grace of God will pull us out, right? We just, yeah, I can live any way I want. Jesus Christ did not die on that cross so that you could go back to your old way of living. Don't get in that ditch, the ditch of licentiousness, the, the, you know, that, that ditch that says I can do whatever I want. On the other side is a ditch that's equally as dangerous and equally as easy to fall into, and that's the ditch of legalism which says I've got to do certain things in order to please God. If I fall off and I, I make a mistake, oh my God, my life with Christ is over. In the no, 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 no. His grace paid the price for all of your sin, past, present, future. You're good. Trust in His grace and get back on the road. You understand? This is going to be a church as long as I lead it. It's going to try to stay on this narrow road that we've been given in Christ Jesus, clearly outlined for us in his word, we're not going to fall off into the ditch of licentiousness and we're not going to fall off in the, into the ditch of legalism. We're going to stay right in the middle of the path because that's where Christ wants us to be. Does that make sense? So y'all don't look at me and say, oh my God, he's turning into a clothesline preacher. He's going to tell me, no, no, no. I, no, no, no. I just want you to know we're going to try to teach you guys how to live right. And I want you to teach me how to live right. And when you see me starting to slip into either that ditch of licentiousness or that ditch of legalism, I want you to look at me and say, oh, Mark, wait a minute, can I talk to you about this? 
I want to be accountable. This is, this is my family. This is my faith family, and I want, I, I'm holding myself completely accountable to you. You keep me straight, okay? Uh, rabbit trail. Back to the message. So, we've got to teach people to live right, being comprehensive and concrete in the way we teach. And the second principle I want to draw from this passage of Scripture is this. We've got to leverage our relationships to teach right living to one another. We've got to leverage our relationships to teach right living to one another. Let's break down this passage of Scripture real quickly again. In verse 1, Paul tells Titus, who is the pastor of that church, to teach. But he doesn't stop there with Titus. This is what I want you guys to see. It wasn't only Titus' responsibility to teach in that church. They all shared in the responsibility to teach each other how to live for the Lord. In verse 2, he tells older men to live the kind of life that sets a good standard for others to follow. In verses 3 and 4, he tells the older women to teach what is good to the younger women. In verses 6 through 8, Paul turns back to Titus, who is himself a young man, and he tells Titus to model for those other young, man, young men what a godly life ought to look like. What I want you to see here is that our relationships with each other offer all these incredible teaching opportunities, and we need to learn to take advantage of them when they open up. Here's the point. Here's the point I'm trying to make here, and I want you to listen to this. This is where I want to empower you guys, all of us, to get involved in this teaching ministry that we have been assigned through the Holy Spirit. Here's the point. The teaching ministry of this church extends far beyond the sermons on Sunday morning and the small groups on Wednesday night. As a matter of fact, I imagine already this happened. There's more teaching that happens in other places, in other times, in much more informal ways around dinner tables, in living rooms, in workplaces, over the phone, through messenger. That seems to be a primary way I do a lot of my teaching anyway, through messenger. <laughs> Sharing a cup of coffee. Here's the point I'm trying to make. God wants us to take our everyday relationships with one another and use them as opportunities to teach one another and learn from one another. Some of the greatest lessons I've ever learned, I have learned in conversations with little six-year-old kids about faith, about trust, about learning to enjoy life. Some of the greatest learning moments in my life have come through my conversations with people struggling with addiction. It's, it's then, it's in talking to them, I've recognized I've got struggles in my own life that I'm going to have to deal with. And in teaching them, I begin to teach. You guys have that, ever have that realization? I'm teaching them to do something, but at the same time, I'm teaching myself to do it too. It's all about mentoring and modeling. Mentoring and modeling. If, you will, if you're taking notes, make sure you get these two words written down. Mentor and model. A mentor is a person or friend who guides a less experienced person by passing on to them what they have learned. And in verses, and again, we see this in this passage of Scripture here. Paul frames it for us. Like, like in verses 3 and 4, it says, Older women, 
Teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Listen, this is what a mentor does, and in the recovery community, we're really familiar with this, and I appreciate that so much. But I've got to be straight with you. If you're not in the recovery community, and you have come to church through the more traditional way of just sitting and soaking in, it, this, this is difficult. The mentoring concept in many churches is a completely foreign concept. In the recovery community, it's not. You guys are told from the get-go, get a sponsor. People who come in through a more traditional way to church don't realize how important that sponsor, that mentor, can be to your life to help you overcome situations and, and sin and problems and issues. And so you've never really taken it upon yourself to sit down to look at somebody and look at them and say, hey man, I need help. Instead you wear a mask and you go around pretending like everything's okay when it's really not. If you can't take your mask off in a church like this, you can't take your mask off ever. I know it's true. I've sat in some of those smug, sanctimonious, self-righteous churches where everybody had it together. Ain't nobody got it together, sister. I have yet to meet a healthy family. I keep waiting, and I'm talking about mine. Oh, we got some problems. Don't we, Michael? <laughs> Can somebody, I'm getting hot. I, is anybody else hot in here? Brian, would you turn that down, please? Um, where am I? I'm on a rabbit trail. Mentoring, yes. Listen, this is what a mentor is to me, a mentor. And if you don't have one, I encourage you to get one. A mentor simply takes a person under his or her wing and says, here, let me help you with that. That's all it is. That's all it is. I hope you have somebody that when you have a question, you know you can get on Messenger, many of you do, or pick up a phone, or say, hey, man, can I, get, can I get a cup of coffee with you? i got to talk about this. I hope you have somebody in your life like that. If you don't, you're missing out on one of the greatest spiritual blessings that God has in store for your life. You need somebody that can look at you and say, man, that's not, let me show you how to do it. Let me show you what God did for me. Let me show you how God helped me work through this. If you don't have a mentor like that in your life, I really kind of feel sorry for you. It's about mentoring and modeling, this teaching that ought to be going on in this fellowship. By modeling, I mean a person who serves as an example of the way life should really be lived. We have a, 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 a statement in, in recovery. Find somebody going in the direction you want to go in and walk with them, you know, that kind of thing. Find somebody that's got what you want. We, we use those kinds of phrases all the time in the recovery community. Those of you who have come in through another door, you may have never heard this before, but I'm telling you, find somebody that's got what you want and figure out how they're doing it. Talk to them. 
Let them tell you how they raised such wonderful kids. Let them tell you how they were able to get their chaotic finances in order. Let them tell you how they were able to overcome that problem that you seem to struggle with. I'm telling you, man, there are people here who you can look to as examples to follow as they follow Christ. And that's exactly, again, what Paul talks to Timothy about. For instance, when he says in verse 7, Timothy, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. He's saying, Timothy, be be an example to those other young men in your church about how life should be lived in order to please God. I mean, like Paul, really, this is the goal. Like Paul, we ought to be able to say to one another, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. We ought to be able to say that. None of us are perfect. I'm telling you right now, none of us is perfect. We are all in progress. Hopefully in progress. Some of us may have stalled. Some of us may be stepping back. But I'm, none of us is perfect. That's, that's the point I'm trying to make. So, so don't think that you have to be perfect. For us to be a church, it's like a city set on a hill. We need to see that all of us have a responsibility to teach one another to live for Christ. Whether it's through formal teaching on Sundays or Wednesdays, or whether it's by mentoring and modeling in our own personal relationships, we have all been entrusted with a responsibility to help others learn to live right. Colossians 3.16 puts it this way, and John posted it on his Facebook this week. He said, the, the word says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell, not just dwell in your head, but dwell in your heart, dwell in you richly till it's overflowing. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. We've got to leverage our relationships with one another to teach each other how to live right so that God can use us to bring him glory. I love what Andrew Murray said. He has a little book about parenting, and I need to start handing it out because it's a great little book. And and there's there's just a, a paragraph that I wanted to read to you from his book about parenting that I think so clearly illustrates what needs to be going on here in all of our relationships. He said this, not in what we say or teach, but in the way we are and do lies the power of training. Not as we think as an ideal for which to train our children, but as we live, do we train them. It's not not our wishes or our theory, but our will and practice that really train. It's by living the Christ life that we prove we love it, that we have it, and thus will influence the young mind to love it and to have it too. That's a powerful statement. You go home and meditate on that all afternoon, it'll change the way you think about your life, about the way you think about your relationships with the, at, at MSP or with your kids at home or with your coworkers at, at, on the job. So let me keep going. To be a church set on a hill that can't be hidden, to be a people who are fully devoted to letting their light shine through their good works so that God is glorified. We've got to teach people to live right. We've got to leverage our relationships with one another to teach each other how to live. And the third thing is this. We've got to recognize the gospel's reputation is at stake. 
And I hope that just sucked the oxygen out of the room. Because I don't think we think about this very much. We've got to recognize the reputation of the gospel is at stake in our teaching. Paul says it three different times in three different ways in this one little passage of Scripture. He says in verse 5, we are to teach people to live right so that the Word of God may not be reviled. He says in verse 8, we are to teach people to live right so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. And in verse 10, he says that we are to teach people to live right so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You don't think he's serious in driving that point home? The gospel's reputation is at stake by the way we live with one another and with people outside the fellowship. I don't know about you. I, I, honestly, I don't know about you. But it's humbling to me to think that the way I live affects the gospel's reputation in our community. It humbles me to think that the way I live affects the way other people think about God. That humbles me, man. Frankly, it stirs up a little healthy fear in me, if you will. It, it, it does. It makes me tremble just a little bit. It makes me want to live my life in such a way that it reflects well on Him. I want to represent God well so people will think well of God. And I hope that's the way you feel too. I, I hope that's the way you feel. Listen, I, I'm telling you right now, when I, when I encourage you to represent Him well, that's not just a little saying we say. That's a philosophy we live by. Represent Him well. The reason God has such a poor reputation in, in America today is because His people do not live well. They don't represent Him well. If you feel like I do, if you feel like I do, that you want your life to represent Christ Jesus well, then we need to take this responsibility to teach one another seriously. Seriously. Let's create a church culture that takes discipleship seriously. Let's create a church culture where spiritual growth is seen as a priority, not an option. Let's commit to relationships that God can use to make us more godly through mentoring and modeling. Let's commit ourselves to creating a culture where everybody wants to dive in and everybody wants to grow up. Because I'm telling you right now, there is nothing, there is nothing more attractive to the world than a community of people living like God wants them to live. Nothing. The early church had nothing. No money, no resources, no buildings, no nothing. And they turned their world upside down. You know how they did it? They lived like Jesus would want them to live. They loved each other. They had a tight community that loved one another, took care of one another, watched over one another, shared burdens. They forgave. Their marriages were healthy. Their kids were obedient. They made the best workers in their, in their workplaces. 
They made Jesus Christ look so good, everybody wanted to know, how can we get into this? How can we gain from our associations with you? They made Jesus look so good that everybody wanted to become a Christian, even in spite of the persecution that was taking place. There is nothing more attractive to the world than a community of people living like God wants them to live. Older men living dignified lives. Older women living reverent lives. Younger women loving their husbands and children. Younger men living with integrity and self-control. What could be more beautiful than that? What could be more attractive than that? What could be more evangelistic than that? Of people living right as God would have them live. 1 Peter 2.12 talks about it when it says, Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. Teaching is such a vital practice in the life of a church, especially in a church like ours. Next to preaching God's word and godly leadership, teaching is the most important tool we have to make disciples. Not just teaching that comes from behind this pulpit, not just teaching that comes on Wednesday nights through our small groups, but teaching that comes from our interactions with one another. I guarantee you, Cindy Hildebrand learned as much or more from Lorna Davis and Jenny Tornator in private conversations than she ever learned from me preaching a message. She learned from them how to accept forgiveness from God. She learned from, well, I may have taught it to her, but she learned it from them. There's a difference, isn't there? She learned how to love her kids. She learned how to accept rejection from her kids when it came, or disobedience from her kids when it came. She learned how to just keep putting one step forward as she made progress in her walk with the Lord. She learned what love and acceptance was really all about. I, I preached it. But I bet she can't remember one sermon I preached about love and acceptance, but she remembers everything she learned from Lorna Davis and Jenny Tornator in their personal interactions together. Right? You don't remember any of my sermons, do you? Nobody remembers my sermons. <laughs> you just said that to make me feel better. What? I, I can't imagine, outside of preaching and godly leadership, a more important practice for a healthy church than teaching, instruction taking place as all of us join in and create this culture of discipleship and spiritual growth. We need to work together to promote that, that culture of discipleship. You need to be engaged. If you're not engaged in building, if, if all you do is come in, sit down, and leave, you're missing out on the best part of this church. 
the some of the best conversations I have, best teaching opportunities, learning opportunities for me, is uh, before our Wednesday night groups when I'm just eating supper with somebody. It's incredible what, I, what I've learned in that fellowship hall just through little personal uh, conversations that took place. I, I'm, I'm rambling now. Okay, let me get back. All right, I, I do want to read, I am not a poetry guy at all, but I came across this little poem and I felt obligated to share it with you because it, I don't like poetry, I'll be honest with you. In English, I hate them, but there's this little poem and it's real simple, it's real simplistic, but I think it frames, it says so well what, what I want you to take away today. It's a little, little poem called The Gospel According to You. It's by a man named Arthur McPhee. I don't know who that is, he probably died a long time ago. But he rocked my, my world this week as I studied and came across it. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are read by more than a few. But the one that is most read and commented on is the Gospel according to you. You are writing a Gospel, a chapter each day, by the things that you do and the words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithless or true, say. What is the Gospel according to you? Do men read his truth and his love in your life? Or has yours been too full of malice and strife? Does your life speak of evil or does it ring true? Say, what is the gospel according to you? You may be the only Bible people ever see. When people see you and you call yourself a Christian, Say you love the Lord. What do they think about God when they think of you? Those are serious questions. Represent Him well. Represent Him well. Make it your life's mission to represent Him well. And work with me, please. Work, work with us to create a culture here where spiritual growth is seen is absolutely necessary to our life with Christ and not an option. Not an option. We've got to eliminate the discipleship deficit. The reason people mock, so, so much of the reason this culture mocks Christianity is because they have seen us do some foolish, hypocritical things. Don't let that be said of us. Don't let that be said of you. 